The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. H.P. Lovecraft, Supernatural Horror in Literature. Violin Vice contains graphic and explicit content, which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. and welcome to Violent Vice Podcast. I am John John. And I'm Audie. Hello. If you haven't already, please hit subscribe and give us five stars and leave a review because we like hearing from you. And that was starting out as an unintentional rhyme and it just happened and now I hope it becomes intentional from now on. But still, it's a fun time. Yes, it is. It really is. Now, the quote is dead giveaway for what we're going to be talking about today, Audie. But before we get into it, I have one thing to plug, and I am so, so sorry the last two audio quality of the episodes, the last two that we did were really bad. That was my bad, just a bit on the editing front, but it should be better after this week, so here we go. All right, technical issues taken care of. Check that off of the to-do list. Woo! Yeah. So, like the quote is saying, today we are talking about the man who made the myths and legends of horror that have influenced a couple generations now. Not, not extensive generations, but lots of generations and a lot of great, great stories. H.P. Lovecraft. Now, Adi, how much do you know about Cthulhu? I don't know anything about Cthulhu, just the name Cthulhu. See, that's how most people, like, it's permeated pop culture so much that most people have at least heard of what Cthulhu is. This is the guy that made it. They, they, all this weird, creepy, tentacle, octopusy, slimy, flying, ancient, old things. This almost completely comes from him. Like a lot of horror stories from probably the start of filmmaking. Anything where it's not a gore or jump scare type horror film has some sort of influence from H.P. Lovecraft. Even Stephen King sees him as one of his greatest inspirations. And he's pumped out scary stories like no other. True, 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 true. So, uh, shall we learn about the crazy mad lad that he is? Yeah, let's dig into it. All right. Well, first off, the H and the P in H.P. Lovecraft, it stands for Howard... Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, you were so close. Ooh. I do, I, okay. Bonus points and brownie points. I, I thought the same thing, like, two days ago. So I'm proud <laughs> of you. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Exactly. But his 
Given name is Howard Phillips Lovecraft. He was born in August uh, of 1890 in his own residential home in Providence, Rhode Island. So he's a Rhode Islander, and his homestead where he was at was super fancy. He was part of one of the richest families of that time, most of which had suggestions that possibly there was a lot of inbreeding within the family to keep the money where it was. But, as some people may know, good things tend to never last. But his mother and father, uh, Winfield Lovecraft and Sarah Susan Phillips, turned Lovecraft when she got married, were both pretty prominent figures in Rhode Island. Winfield actually making a pretty good sum of money for himself as a traveling salesman. And Sarah Susan, we'll just call her Susie from now on because that's hard for the all the yeses. But her family is most of where that thought of possible inbreeding and lots of like fancy underbitey type people would be in Rhode Island would be in that family as well. And quite substantially, mostly sticking with her father at the time, whose first name is Whipple. That's a new one for me. That's a funny one, Whipple. It is. But full name Whipple Van Buren Phillips was quite the businessman all throughout. So in April, in three years old, little Lovecraft, actually a little bit, two two years old, not quite three, but in 1893, his father had been a psychotic episode in a Chicago hotel. Mr. Lovecraft Winfield was committed to a hospital in Providence called the Butler Hospital, which is essentially a psych ward in the early 1800s, so I wouldn't exactly say it was a great place to be. Though, um, it's not exactly clear who reported Winfield, Mr. Glovecraft's, uh, prior behavior to the hospital, but there was medical records indicating that he had been doing and saying strange things at times for more than a year before being committed, in which he did spend five years in the Butler Hospital until he died there. Now, his, uh, H.P. Lovecraft's mom kind of tried to protect little, little Lovecraft from this kind of problem. Just so essentially all he knew was that his dad was in a hospital and he's probably never going to see him again. It was later found out that his father's psychotic episode was possibly due to him being a traveling salesman and contracting syphilis, which really messed with his mind. So starting out really bright and cheery for little H.P. Lovecraft. His father went crazy and sent to a hospital because he had syphilis. 
Now, being just a single mother with a small child, him being the only child as well, might have been a little helpful. I ended up moving in with her father, Whipple, which we mentioned earlier, with him, his wife, and Susie's two sisters. So it was a lot of adult female presence there. Though it, many records would say that at this time, even though Susie was very much grief-stricken throughout all of it, is essentially she doted on HP like there was no tomorrow. The ultimate doting mom. Almost always having him by her side. And since there was no male figure for the little Lovecraft to understand anything with the world, he really took to his grandfather and saw him as probably a more influential father figure than he may have experienced before. And since he was so doted on upon his mother and being kind of protected, he didn't get a lot of formal schooling as well. But being the rich man he was, Grandpa Whipple had this extensive library where the young Lovecraft person really dove in to learning to read, learning many poems. One of his favorite poets was Edgar Allan Poe, as well as going into deep mythological like escapades in literature and whatnot, like with the Odyssey, the Iliad, a lot of like ancient Greek classics. And by the age of eight, growing up there, he's essentially a practicing pagan, making shrines to all these different ancient Greek gods in the woods near their house. So he was very much in like a fantasy place throughout much of his childhood. Though, that sounds a lot happier than it was. Because ever since he learned that his father was dead, he started suffering from night terrors of these winged flying creatures that were essentially completely humanoid, but there were no features whatsoever on the face. A very blank face. And... Every time he would experience one of these night terrors, he would essentially be shook for days at a time. Very much, very, very much unstable, especially as a child, not being able to identify stuff like that. However, they ended up being more of an inspiration to him later on, as you may learn quite soon. Now, as we mentioned before, he really dove into these mythologies, reading a whole lot, mostly taking to geography and astronomy, as well as a bunch of other different kind of broad practices of like very big subjects, not focusing too much on the small, and ended up doing a lot of just internal research on his own. Again, not being formally educated, being essentially completely self-taught, if not slightly homeschooled by his grandfather, he ended up learning a whole bunch of different variety of things. But most of it was along the lines of, like, 
archaeology, geography, ancient sort of civilizations, in a weird, like, anthropology, archaeology, based on literary works type things, as well as a lot of cosmology and astrology type things and celestial bodies of what was available at that time. All the way up until mid-teens, when his mother started getting very, very, very protective of him. And his grandfather dying. So he's lost two father figures. His mother is no longer just grief-stricken from losing her husband and doting on the child, but now very much spiraling out of control in a very dark way. Losing his grandfather was very, very bad. Because even though he seemed very rich, he was handling his businesses terribly. So within days of his death, his aunts, himself, and his mother were evicted from the house with almost no money to their name anymore. So they were rich people, suddenly on the brink of starvation, essentially, in terms of poverty. They had to move away and get a small apartment that was very grubby, which is a huge adjustment and only made him more reclusive, made his mother even more possessive and having sort of a toxic codependent relationship on each other where they'd essentially be insulting each other and almost completely guarding of each other of things. So he he became quite a recluse. I feel like at this point Zuko would go, that's rough, buddy. You know, you're not wrong. That probably would be it. But it's not done. There, there is a slight glimmer of hope. Part of that is that they needed money, and his mother couldn't really do anything because she was born into money and not needed many skills. So he began writing for different magazines on all the different subject matters that he was pretty knowledgeable of at this point. Sending in poems to small magazines, a lot of different astronomy journals as well. Mostly mostly a lot of different small things here and there. Just so they could get means to get by. However, there was one magazine that he was very much a fan of called the Argosy, which is essentially a place where people would send in short romance stories. So sort of like those dime novels, but for even less. And there was one <laughs> one particular author for the Argosy that Lovecraft thought was the worst writer he's ever seen in any regard. So much so that he would send letter after letter after letter 
to the Argosy criticizing this person's writing. The thing is, not only were the letters super extensive, because this guy was a regular writer for it, but all of his letters were written in rhyme. So it's just like, I not only have time to do all these letters to tell you you're doing a terrible job, I am making it entertaining. So he essentially trolled this one author beyond compare, so much so that it ended up entertaining one of the people in charge of a different uh, like magazine, sort of like a person that helps print out ma many magazines. It was called the United Amateur Press Association. He was a head editor there. And he saw all these letters coming in from this one person that were all written in rhyme, criticizing how bad one author was, that he invited Lovecraft to come and join this United Amateur Press Association and start writing for different magazines for them. That's hilarious. It is! Like, that's... It's weird how, like, your writing career essentially, as, like, a fiction writer, starts from trolling a dude. Like, straight up, it's just, like, hate mail after hate mail after hate mail. You write your hate mail so good, we're going to hire you as a writer. So, I saw, like, kind of a side tangent. I was reading mm -hmm. up on this article the other day, and it said that people have been essentially, quote-unquote, shitposting for eons. Um, there was a cave that a Viking wrote ruins, like, 21 foot high or something up on this cave, and mm -hmm. it just says it is high up here. <laughs> I think I've heard that as well. Like a lot of like Viking graffiti is more just more or less the same as yeah. any other kind of graffiti. Because I think even in Pompeii, they found ro like ruins on like walls and stuff that said like Marcus was here. Yep. Yep. So it's just like it. It is very much a pastime. It is. So I, I just, I like that trolling, like we may have new terms for it, but like it's been going on for decades and centuries. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, End of side tangent. No, no, it's a good point. It is just like, this is insane that this guy got hired essentially for shitposting. It's not many people can claim that they were hired because of something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, though. It is crazy. So, anyway, he got this job at this place because shitposting. And he sort of immersed himself in, like, a world of amateur journalism for most of this next upcoming decade of his. Like, we're already in the 1900s. So... Now that he's an adult, 1914, he gets this job because he wrote a bunch of letters, hateful letters, that rhymed, and now he is essentially getting paid to write normal, easy kind of things. 
I wouldn't say they're really easy. Writing a short story is difficult, but popping out a lot of different stuff. And he rose up a lot through these ranks over these next couple of years. But the thing is, he was so reclusive up until this point that now that he had this job there, he was meeting a lot of people that were also in a similar boat as him. And he actually started making some of the first friends he's ever had at this point. Now, I should probably bring up at this point, one of the main problems people have with Lovecraft these days is that he was an extremely xenophobic and racist person. To a point. Like, he hated immigrants. He didn't understand people that weren't like him very well. He was very, very much an anti-Semite. However, most of his friends in these scenarios would also be checked off in some of these categories of races that he thoroughly hates. So it's just, it seems he has a weird cognitive dissonance. It's just like, I know him, he's an exception. But all these people are like this, except for this guy I know. So it's very kind of confusing. Most of that being, I'm guessing, raised from money and then getting flung into a very hard position and then being surrounded by people that are very different from him, not looking like him, and wouldn't understand where he's coming from. So, in a way, there's there's no real excuse for him being as racist as he was. It's a terrible thing. But at least he was willing to hear people out and be friends with people that he would, in general, hate. So I should kind of put that out there. Because that's usually one of the more well-known facts about him, is that he's an extreme racist. However, he's also an extreme fan of cats, as well. So, cat lover, super racist, has friends with races that he hates. It's a weird mishmash, very confusing. So, I don't know, Adi, can you find a reason that that would be like logical in thinking because I'm, I'm having a hard time putting together that well okay just to like flood off it wouldn't be acceptable in today's standards whatsoever but at the time like if you're a recluse that's kind of the norm i mean i can see how he was raised like that to think like that but again wouldn't be acceptable for that time yeah so, like, you know, imagine, like like you said, he was brought up really, really rich, so he had, like, exclusive circles that probably talked down on other people because that's usually what they do. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't have that wide of a network, like you said, he's making friends for the first time, like, mm-hmm. just a little bit ago. That's why he's, like, expanding his horizons, I guess, but he still has those ingrained racial thoughts, I guess, mm-hmm. or prejudices he's growing up yeah still though like it's just kind of weird because i'm gonna be getting into another thing like i I did mention he's an anti-semite and two of his close friends that he met in this job were 
Jewish people that he had regular correspondence in like a very collaborative and like friendly manner. So it's kind of hard to see how it's just like he's anti-Semite, but he has like his best friends are Jews. I don't know what that means. So. I, I, you know, like, again, all I can say is, like, you know, if he was predisposed to it and have those tendencies and then maybe, like, opened up his eyes later on, that would be good. But I don't know what he's going to do or mm. whatnot to still be anti-Semitic. But, yeah. It's mostly just in his personal criticisms and commentary. Doesn't do a whole lot, but it does also get more angry and worse later on. Anyway, he met a lot of fun people that he learned a lot from at this place. And in 19, between 1916 and 1917, he released some of his first stories that were in his Lovecraftian universe. The two were called The Tomb and Dagon. Now, according to Lovecraft, The Tomb follows closely the style and construction of the writings of one of his largest influences, Edgar Allan Poe, and Dagon is considered Lovecraft's first work that embraced the concepts and themes that his writings would later be known for. So, sort of, the tomb was more of a love letter to Edgar Allan Poe and that kind of thing, where Dagon was the start of this rabbit hole of crazy unknowable eldritch horrors now he did keep on writing these stories was still working for the uapa as they keep calling it but the united amateur press association and by 1918 he was in a position as like a chairman of the department of public criticism for the uapa which I find kind of ironic because that's kind of maybe he was hoping to recruit people along the same line that he was in that position. But he ended up finding out that his mother was starting to exhibit some symptoms in the winter of that year of nervous breakdowns and ended up moving to live with her sisters lovecraft's aunts that were also in that same house that he grew up in it wasn't exactly sure what she may be suffering from exactly likely a combination of depression anxiety a lot of different stuff from that kind of stuff like area of grief affecting illnesses and was later admitted in march of 1919 being admitted to the exact same hospital that his dad resided at so both of his parents had mental breakdowns of sorts brought to an insane asylum and started to kind of lose hope about his parents like most of his, almost all of his parent, parental figures were dying around him with nothing he could do about it. Following that year, Lovecraft did start to become a little bit more outgoing and having more 
correspondence with a lot more people from the UAPA. Like, there was a period of him being very isolated. He began going on trips and gatherings of all these writers and essentially talk shop in all these different places because there wasn't exactly, like, computer forum or anything like that kind of thing. So this was, like, the closest that it was. And while he was in Boston, he was presented by a person named Lord Dunsany, whom Lovecraft had recently discovered and idolized, and ended up meeting more and more people in these upper circles throughout a lot of the East Coast in lots of different ways. Also, he started writing many, many different stories with the influence of this Lord Dunsany. And a lot of the stories that you can see him having these influence was throughout 1920 with stories that were titled The White Ship, The Doom That Came to Sarnath, and The Statement of Randolph Carter, as well as later on. The Cats of Ulthar and Selaface. There's more than a few cats in a lot of these stories. So a lot of people realize that he was very, very much of a cat fan. So I, you know, I, I'm kind of picking up on that with all the cat themes. Yeah, I don't like there's no indication that he had cats growing up. I'm only assuming that he might have. But they're just in a lot of these different stories like the one called the cats of ulthar that one is like focused on cats but there are cats in almost every one of his normal setting at least start point stories because i did end up reading a lot of his works and there are at least mentions or just setting type things of this cat moving along a certain way to set a scene and it's just like there are cats everywhere in this stuff. Nice. So, big fan of cats. Now, on May 24th, 1921, his mother died in the Butler Hospital due to some complications with a surgery with her gallbladder earlier that week. Lovecraft's initial reaction, expressed in a letter nine days after her death, was that of an extreme nervous shock that crippled him physically and emotionally and, like, put him in, into a deep depression to the point where he felt like he may not be able to go on. But despite this reaction, he was still being very, very social and invited to all these different events, many of them like just other amateur journalist conventions. And it was at one of these conventions in July of that year, so not two months later, that he met a woman called Sonia Green. Now, Sonia Green was born Jewish, seven years older than Lovecraft. And for some reason, they really hit it off there. And they later became married in a very quiet wedding that almost nobody knew about, and only his 
living relatives his two aunts knew about after receiving a letter five days after it already happened about it. So it was needless to say that his aunts very much disapproved of a relationship with this person, which may indicate where he could have gotten his anti-Semitism from. And they ended up being very, very good for each other. And they ended up moving to Brooklyn, an apartment at 793 Flatbush Avenue. Because she thought that being in a bigger city around more people was a lot healthier for him getting out and doing more things. And as an owner of a hat shop, she needed a bigger city with more people who would buy her hats. So she was able to support him pretty well financially so he could be more free to do his writing as well. Allowing for a lot more of like a not so much codependent but very cooperative relationship. Very different from what he's had with other women before. And she would often attribute his typical passive nature to a Adultifying upbringing by his mother is what she would call it. But being very, very doting to the point where he wasn't allowed to explore other things, such as his sexual nature. So there was a lot of sort of tension there. And there are anecdotes of her explaining that he wouldn't really do much in terms of intercourse until... She gave him a manual of how it is done before he would even try it. So, that kind of recluse type person. I don't know, Adi, would you ever consider dating a guy that would need to read a manual for such things? I mean, at least he's trying reading the manuals. Mm-hmm. So, like, he's at least putting the effort forward, which is a lot more than some people do in other relationships. Yeah, like it's because they got along great. They really loved each other, but he just didn't know what was going on with that. Yeah. So, blatantly at that point, she, Sonia pretty much was certain that he was also a virgin from not knowing what was going on, which is probably a good indication. Probably. Now, unfortunately, these good times never seem to last. Because of some technical problems with Sonia having a couple of different sicknesses and such like that, she started losing her ability to maintain her hat business and had to move in 1925 on New Year's Day to Cleveland for a different job opportunity so she could help support that marriage. And since Lovecraft couldn't support his apartment just by himself, he ended up having to move from the Flatbush apartment for a first-floor apartment on 169th Clinton Street at the edge of a neighborhood called Red Hook. Now, he didn't like this at all. Very much not at all. Because it was a lot 
of different ethnicities. It was essentially where people with them immigrated to New York. You might find a lot of them in Red Hook. So a lot of Italian, African, Asian, a lot of like South American as well. Central American, a lot of these different cultures that he had no idea what was or anything essentially surrounded him. Which, in a way, only worsened his racist beliefs. To the point where he was just so, so, so reclusive. Almost to the point, I would say, where he would rarely leave the house unless he absolutely had to. Because he just was so uncertain of all these things around him. I get your questions now on, like, why he would have, like, contradict himself and have friends across races. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if he's that recluse, and, like, he already had friends, I don't, I don't get what his thought process is. No, it's more just an unfamiliarity and a loss of comfort in ways. And needless to say... A lot of these problems he was dealing with ended up inspiring a lot of stories for him. So, during this time, Green would be moving to wherever there was work, like relocating to Cincinnati, back to Cleveland, and her employment required almost constant travel. Adding to the daunting reality of failure in a city with a large immigrant population, Lovecraft's single-room apartment in Red Hook was not far from a working-class waterfront neighborhood as well, all part of Red Hook, and was regularly burgled, leaving him with only the clothes he was wearing several times. So, ending up in that situation did not help him with his beliefs about race at all. And in August of 1925, he ended up writing The Horror at Red Hook and just H-E, he. In the latter of which, the narrator says, My coming to New York had been a mistake, for whereas I had looked for poignant wonder and inspiration. I had found instead only a sense of horror and oppression which threatened to master, paralyze, and annihilate me. So, sort of a personal address to the neighborhood of Red Hook. He really, really didn't like it. But also, at that time, it's when he wrote out the outline for his story, The Call of Cthulhu with its theme of the insignificance of all humanity being sort of the core to it, and only receiving a weekly allowance from his wife, he ended up moving once again, but to a Brooklyn Heights area, where he subsisted in a very tiny apartment, had lost almost 40 pounds, and in 1926, he ended up leaving for Providence where his aunts lived. Now, they only agreed to do this because they knew he was so poverty-stricken and 
very much anti-Semitical. They said they'd only take him if he would agree to never see his wife again. And being in such a bad place, I, I wish he said no deal and I'll move on. But he ended up taking the deal and moving in with his aunt, never to see his wife again. I don't know. Seems like a dick move. That's kind of fucked up. It is. It is. And having barely seen her for a while due to her job, that's... I don't know. I don't really have a good reasoning for it. It's just a dick move. It's just yeah. like, I'm, I miss money so much that I'll do anything to get out of it. It's just bad. However, moving back in Providence, he lived in a very spacious brown Victorian wooden house at 10 Barnes Street in the city of Providence until 1933. And he ended up writing several of his best stories there. Sort of being out of a very stressful, uncomfortable, cramped area, and now essentially being alone in a large room, like a large, roomy house, to himself, he was able to very much express himself more fully. So in a way, it was his renaissance of writing, now that he didn't have to think about as much. Which also seems kind of dickish. But in this renaissance, he ended up writing The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which also is very littered with lots of cats. I should mention that. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which the home of the main character is the exact same address as his own home. And At the Mountains of Madness. All three are some of his longest works and some of his more well-known ones as well. And he would oftenly revise work for other authors and did a large amount of ghostwriting, including stories called The Mound, Winged Death, and The Diary of Alonzo Typer. And since it was around the same time that Harry Houdini was also a ghostwriter of sorts. They ended up collaborating on a few different things. However, Houdini did die quite shortly after, but they met. That's kind of cool. He met Harry Houdini. I want to cover Houdini and do like a multi-part series at some point, but that's yeah. for a later day. Yeah, it's just there's so much there. There is so much. It is. But yeah, he met Houdini. Um, although he was able to combine his very distinctive style of like elusive and amorphous descriptions of things, so it's just a very general, vague description, but elicits such complex imagery, sort of just like trying to compl comprehend what is physically impossible was very much in his wheelhouse of what he tried to do 
he ended up becoming like uh, having that kind of style with the kind of stock content and action that the editor of a magazine called Weird Tales wanted. He was paid handsomely uh, by a man called Wright to snap up the story called The Dunwich Horror, which is also very popular and very much one of the core tenets of Lovecraftian stories for people to read. I think if I know any of them, that one would be the one that I would know. Mm. It sounds really familiar. Right? I think I think you'd get a good kick out of that one. Now, after this sort of renaissance of all these good stories, he would be writing a lot more of these stories for the Weird Tales magazine. And most of which brought him no remuneration. I don't know. I don't think I think it just means that it didn't sustain him monetarily. But it sort of gave him a calm indifference to the reception of his works since most people did not know about him at this time. He was mostly writing all these tiny stories. Very few of it got published outright. Many of it took many, many years to just get published anywhere. All of his more popular Cthulhu Lovecraftian mythos type things. All of his short stories for these small magazines were more of where he got his money from. Not a whole lot of people had read some of his best works. Like those four that I mentioned before. Like the dream quest of Unknown Kadath and stuff like that. He simply just wrote those and was looking for people to print them. But nobody was really was able to. Because it wasn't popular at the time. He was starting to kind of lose hope on ever making a huge difference with anything that he did. But he would mostly spend his time later on just writing letters. Since he lived in Providence and not near anybody, really, that he became very close friends with, he would write more letters than he would write for any work. I think the total number of letters he wrote reaches into 100,000 overall. So imagine writing that many letters. It's extensive. I think the only one who wrote more that is well known is a French philosopher called Voitier. That's what it mentions. It is a lot of letters. It is. Now, with these small stories, he wasn't really ever, ever able to pay for a lot of basic expenses, especially after his aunts passed away. So he was becoming more and more limited in what he could do, living very frugally, subsisting on what little inheritance was left. He ended up going many days simply without food, or what food he did have was often bad, very rotted or well past any sort of expiration date that we'd have on there now. 
he ended up publishing only a few short stories through those times, but ended up contracting in those very poor dietary times a type of cancer, intestinal cancer, which wasn't really well understood at that time, and which he took to just calling the grip, spelled G-R-I-P-P-E, because he had to be fancy like that. And being as reclusive as he is, going to a doctor meant meeting somebody new, somebody he wasn't sure about, so he thoroughly avoided it a lot. And he almost went up to the point of like a month before dying of the cancer, before ever seeing a doctor, where they did diagnose him with a terminal cancer. And he remained there hospitalized until he died in March 15th, 1937, in a Providence hospital. Now, the thing is, with that, not many people knew about him still at that point. I mean, he was well-traveled, knew a lot of different people, and some of those people are why we are aware of who he is today. One in particular took to taking all of these different stories that he had and just pushed to publish them. And when nobody would, he ended up making his own publishing company. And because he was also from a wealthy family, would just continue to publish them and publish them story after story, and he would barely get any business until he started publishing translated versions. It was actually in Europe, specifically France, where his stories started to get very popular. Because post-World War II, France was in a bad way. They already loved Edgar Allan Poe, and they could tell that this guy was essentially the 20th century version of Edgar Allan Poe. So they really took to those stories. And those stories spread more and more and more to the point where they were able to republish his books in America, in English, for a drastic increase of sales. And that led to more and more and more and more people becoming aware, becoming essentially their own cults of Cthulhu and the man who came from all these places. So in a way, business of trying to sell his works to a different country made it so it was popular for everybody. Yeah, I bet those first editions, though, are like hella expensive. Oh my god, that is exactly what I thought when I learned this. Yeah. It's just like... Out of, like, their first orders that they did, everyone that, like, tried to put in an order for those first ones they made, they expected so many more than what they got. Only 150 copies were sold. So if any of those even made it, oh, oh, big money. Big money. 
But yeah, that's that's the life of H.P. Lovecraft. If you haven't read any of his stories, there's a lot of short ones. So if you're not willing to dedicate a long time to a specific story, just pick a random one. You'll you'll get the gist of it. But there are like straight up borrowings of a lot of like his stories. Like the story of the thing is based on one of his stories. Uh, the invasion of the body snatcher type thing. It's just super creepy stuff. If you've seen anything with Cthulhu or like a flying thing with squid tentacles on his face, comes from him. A whole different mythos was made by his friends. So like a pantheon of old and ancient gods in that kind of close group of amateur writers and journalists read Call of Cthulhu and they just expanded on that pantheon to a point where it's just there's ancient old ones and the old gods. So just Everywhere you look, there might be some sort of indication of H.P. Lovecraft influencing everything. Though my personal favorite is one called The Shadow Over Innsmouth. It was super creepy. And, like, it gave me chills. Possibly nightmares. You should send me links to all those. I have, like, the full bibliography in front of me. And out of all the books he read... Uh, all the books that he made, there are 64 that he wrote just by himself and many more that he had collaborations with. But, jeez, it's really long. There's a lot. think one that I would suggest, besides The Shadow of Innsmouth, is... You know, probably the Cats of Ulthar. That that one was just fun. They aren't all super scary stories. There's a lot of them that are just based in, like, dreams in itself. It's a fun... I Actually, that that's a weird way to put it. It's not fun. A lot of it is not fun. It's just weird and unknowing. So however you react to the unknown will probably be how you react to a lot of these stories. Got it. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Well, I'm just looking through all of these now. There's so many. The silver key, I remember, is super creepy. Super creepy. Oh, I gotta do that now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Call of Cthulhu is a little bit underwhelming for how much people know about Cthulhu. But... It's still, that's kind of what it is. It's more of just people trying to call Cthulhu. He's not exactly showing up in the story, except in figurines and stuff. Still kind of cool. But that is all I have for H.P. Lovecraft, Adi. Do you want to take everybody out? Yeah, I can do that. Nice job covering him. Thank you. All right, so if you guys 
want to do us a favor, again, hit that subscribe button, give us a review, leave us five stars. We'd really, really appreciate it. If you want to follow us, you can do so on Facebook and Instagram at Violent Bias Podcast. If you want to email us or support us on PayPal, you can do so at violentvice at gmail.com. Again, that's B-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E at gmail.com. If you guys want to tweet at us, it's just at violentvice. And if you want to go above and beyond and support us monthly and receive bonus materials such as bloopers and more scary stories that i read to terrify john john you can do so at patreon.com backslash file and vice that's www.patreon.com backslash v-i-l-e-a-n-d-v-i-c-e no ampersands here so we'd really really appreciate it and Guys, I'm excited for the next couple of weeks because we have some holiday-themed spooktacular stories for you guys. Yes, the creepy kringles of Christmas. Oh, I can't wait. Ooh. Ooh. Super spooky. So thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Rivak. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Vice. Or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.